And let's turn in our copies of God's Word uh, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Today our consideration is verse 28. We'll begin in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according 
to the will of God. And now for our consideration today, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our God, and it stands forever. In the uh, film, The Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya, the character, uh, beloved character, Inigo Montoya, turns to his boss, Fezzik, at one point after he keeps uh, using the word inconceivable. He's describing everything as inconceivable, and Inigo says to him, you keep using that word... I do not think it means what you think it means. And I have sometimes wondered if that's an appropriate response to some off-quoted verses in Scripture. You keep using that verse. I do not think it means what you think it means. And I have thought that about Romans 8, 28. Um, It is easily within the top five most quoted. I mean, this is not, I didn't look up Gallup or anything. That's just my guess. Top five, maybe top three even. Uh, Most quoted, most loved Bible verses of all time, and for good reason. But when we're overly familiar with something, we can start to forget its real significance. Uh, Certain truths are lost on us. Certain truths can even be unintentionally warped by us. And what I'm referring to is that oftentimes when people share this verse, what they mean by it or what other people Think or what other people interpret when they hear this verse is something like, it's all going to be worked out just the way you want it to be. Um, give, give, you know, you're, you're in a difficult situation here, but give it a few weeks, maybe a few months, and, and pretty soon you'll find out that everything is, is just peachy. And, and really what happens is that there becomes, sometimes in the way Christians use this verse, there becomes essentially no difference uh, in that use of the verse, then if a non-believer was to pat somebody on the back after a difficult trial and say something like, they're there, you know, it's all for the best. Um, it'll all work out. Uh, now, what basis does an unbeliever have for making such a claim that, that it's all for the best or it will all work out? Well, none whatsoever. It just sounds right. It feels right. It sounds good. It feels good. It's you know, you don't really know what to say, and that's a great thing to say at the moment. It, it'll all be okay. It'll all work out. What basis does the believer have to make that claim? None whatsoever, but the Christian, the Christian, on the other hand, has every reason to make such a claim. And yet, here's the concern, we often make it just as flippantly, just as thoughtlessly as somebody who is sort of just, you know, uh, making some kind of Pollyanna Uh, um, declaration upon life. It will all be okay. It will all work out. Now, I'm not wanting you to use this well-known verse less. In fact, I want you to use it more. I want you to use it more often. I want you to use it more earnestly. I want you to use it more meaningfully. I want you to use it more accurately. Because this verse has, as uh, Robert Haldane, the commentator, says, this verse contains a truth affording the highest consolation. Not even a high consolation, the highest consolation. And I want us to uncover that. I want us to unpack that. I want us to really know what this verse is about so that when we say it, when we share it with others, we're sharing it in all of its significance. So 
To that end, we're taking this very familiar verse, and I want us to unpack its meaning by working through it kind of methodically and, and, and um, step by step. We're going to look at five key two-word phrases that, that appear in this verse. Very simple outline for us. Five two-word phrases, and the order I'm going to take these phrases is if you have a King James or maybe New King James also, the structure, grammatical structure that... that that translation takes. So these five two-word phrases, we know all things work together for good for them. For them. Let's consider each of those phrases in turn. First, notice how Paul opens this grand promise. We know. So the content of this verse isn't something the Christian... um, uh, or is, this something, is something that the Christian knows with a firm conviction. It's not a bare wish. It's not an empty conjecture or a timid uh, guess. We know all things work for good. And it's interesting because Paul has actually just told us something we don't know. If you look a few verses prior, what does he say? We do not know what to pray for. We don't know that. And why don't we know what to pray for? Because we don't know the mind of God. We don't know the will of God. We want to pray according to God's will, but we don't know it perfectly. And so we find ourselves bound and we say, we don't know what to pray for. And yet now he says, and yet we know something else. We know all things work together for the good of those who love God. And so what we're, what we're seeing here is even though we don't know the precise details or outworking of God's will in our lives, we know the end. We know where it's all leading. We do know that, and it's leading to our good, and we're entirely convinced of it. Now, how do we know this? Well, it's not necessarily because we've experienced it. That is a sweet blessing when you can look back on your life and say, Romans 8.28 has been made abundantly clear to me in this and in this and in this, but sometimes we don't have that. Sometimes it seems like um, our lives... Preach the opposite of the truth of Romans 8.28. And yet Paul says, no, but we still know it. Why? Because it's not a conclusion drawn from experience, but from faith. Right? Not sight, but faith. It's because we believe in God that we can say all things work for good. Because God's com- character demands that sort of deduction. Uh, Psalm 119, he is good and he does good. And so that means a reality in which all things do not tend towards good would be a failure on the part of God. But God never fails. As the world was created in goodness, it must be consummated in goodness as well. We know it because we know God. And furthermore, we know it because of the love that God has for his people. It must be this way. Uh, Ephesians 1.22 says, God placed all, thing, all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the sake of the church. Christ is ruling and reigning over everything for the sake of his people, for the betterment and the benefit of his people. Uh, Ephesians 1.22 is telling us that Christ maintains a decided preference for his church in all of his works and in all of his designs. We know who God is. We know how much he loves us, and so we can say we know all things work for good. Well, now let's look at that second phrase, all things. Christ maintains a preference for his church in all his work and in his design of all things. Well, what does this mean? What do we learn from this phrase? 
on the one hand, we acknowledge it's a sobering statement because Paul is implying here that the Christian's experience is really no different than the non-Christian's experience. It's not just that certain things happen to the Christian and other things happen to the non-Christian. All things. We experience all things. Uh, Now, there's a brand of preaching. It's complete lies, by the way. That says uh, that certain things should not happen to real Christians. And that if if you're believing hard enough, and if you're praying hard enough, and in particular, if you mail a check for $100 to the address at the bottom of your screen... We can guarantee that you're not going to have to deal with physical hardship, with financial hardship, with relational strife. That's not what Paul's saying here. He says all things happen to Christians. Look at verse 35 of chapter 8. What does he say? He says the Christian will undergo the whole gamut of experience, which includes tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. All things. The Christian circumstance are no better than anybody else's. So that's a sobering thought. But here's the encouraging thought. All things also means that there is not a single circumstance that happens to you in life that is a waste. There's not a single thing that will happen to you in life that's a waste. You know, I have in my garage, I have three shelves um, that are filled with very various pieces of scrap wood, right? Um, Where did they come from? They're leftovers from uh, projects I've done over the years, pieces I didn't need, things I wasn't using. They they turned out not to be necessary. But I want you to know that there are there is not some you know in the final analysis uh, a shelf that stores your unneeded, uh, useless, not necessary experiences in life. There's no leftovers. When it comes to to lived experience for the Christian, God uses everything, everything that we go through, all things God uses to produce our good. When, When Paul says all things, he's saying that God knows exactly what he's doing with every part of our life. And there's nothing left over. There's nothing that's not needed. There's nothing that he says, well, I actually ended up not needing to go through that. So that means, friends, that you will not look back on the hard parts, the difficult parts, or the heartbreaking times of your life and say, you know what, I really actually didn't need to go through that. You'll never say that. And John Newton is the one who captured this truth best when writing a letter to a friend. He said this, Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing is wasted. All things means that every situation you encounter is useful and is right for you. And in that ultimate sense, we could say there is really no bad thing that can happen to a Christian. I know it doesn't feel like that in life, and I don't think it's supposed to feel that way. But in the final analysis, the Christian looks back on their life and says, you know, really? Now that I see the way God was orchestrating everything, the all things, the good and the bad, there actually was no bad. Because he took that and even used it to accomplish this end of good. For the Christian, the best things that happen to us, and even the worst things that happen, all accomplish this same end, which is our good. Now, the reason both the best things and the worst things can do that is because they are working together. 
And that is the third phrase of your keeping up. We know all things work together. Now, what does that mean? What's the significance of that phrase? Uh, the Greek word behind it is one Greek word. It actually is where we get our English word, uh, synergy. It almost sounds exactly like synergy. Synerge, synergy. And so maybe that helps you kind of conceptualize what we mean by working together. The idea of synergy is, is a, you know, the idea of a variety of disparate or disconnected things coming together to produce something unified, something complete, uh, something even greater than the sum of their separate effects. Synergy. I was thinking that uh, pharmaceuticals is probably a good example of this, right? Various chemicals that on their own might not do you any good or even maybe could do you great harm when blended together at just the right levels actually can do quite a lot of good and produce great health benefits for you. And the same is true in our lives. Whether we deem a circumstance to be particularly good or not, what we're learning here is that there is a sweet um, harmony or a concert. You know, think of that word concert. It means all these different instrumentalists working together to make one sound. There's this sweet concert, um, a blend of everything in our life that leads to our good. So that means that uh, troubles aren't negating joys. Persecutions don't negate peace. Grief and loss doesn't cancel out happiness in life. It doesn't work like that. All things are working together. They're not contradicting each other. They're cooperating. And so then the question is, how can that be? How can that be? How is that so that they're all working together? Well, because God is the one who's orchestrating it all. Go back to the concert metaphor. So yes, it is true that all things work together for good, but that is only because God is the one who's working all things. Uh, this working together, this synergy, this synergy, it's a word about providence. The sweet doctrine of providence. And providence teaches us that God is governing all of his creatures, all their actions. There's no chance. There's no fate. But there's divine sovereignty controlling it all. And the NIV, to draw this point out better, translates God as the subject of the verb rather than all things. So it reads like this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, grammatically, either option is possible. Theologically, this is the preferred option. This is the preferred option because the verse is affirming God's hand in every single event of our lives. That God's the one blending or mixing, as it were, all the various ingredients of our life to produce a final result that is for our good. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel like that in life. Sometimes we think of life as sort of we're, we're caught in, in a, a, a battle, a fight between good and evil. Um, you know, we view life like this, that when sin and suffering strike, evil has won. There's, there's a point for Team Satan. But when a blessing comes or when a prayer is answered, there's a point for, for Team God. Well, let Romans 8.28 dispel you of that perspective on life. We're learning that God is orchestrating everything. What we see as good and what we see as bad all come from him. And it was, it was the great... Theologian Augustine, who reminded us that Job's famous declaration is not, the Lord gave and the devil has taken away. No, 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 no. What's he say? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name 
of the Lord. That's providence. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, God's providence teaches us that everything in life, all things in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things. Well, as we look now at the next phrase, which is for good, all things are working together for good. I want us to slow down here because I think this is the place uh, where we are most apt to misinterpret the promise or to disbelieve it altogether. We misinterpret it when we don't have a proper biblical understanding of what Paul means here when he says good. Good does not mean whatever we want it to mean. Um, uh, good is not everything will work out the way you want it, the way you think it should work out, um, the way that it makes sense to us. The good of Romans 8.28 is greater than the good that you or I could ever imagine because, in a word, it's referring to glory. If you continue on the verses there, the argumentation that Paul makes in 28, 29, 30, you see that's the case. Look at those verses. Paul says that all things work out for good for those who are called. And then the next verse, he tells us those who are called are the ones who are ultimately glorified. And until then, they're the ones who are conformed to the image of the glorious one, the Son of God. And so, in other words, the the good that God has in mind for us is a good that leads to our sanctification and then ultimately our glorification. That's what it means when he says all things work for good. It's that that he has in, in view here. Douglas Moo writes, There is nothing in this world that is not intended by God to assist us on our earthly pilgrimage and to bring us safely and certainly to the glorious destination of that pilgrimage. But I want to say here's where we start to disbelieve the promise. Okay, so we misinterpret the promise if we think that good means whatever we want it to mean. But then we can disbelieve it if when we look at our life, we think there is no way... (laughs) There's no way good can come out of, and fill in the blank. Maybe, maybe you've been in that situation. Maybe you've held a fist up to heaven, metaphorically, or, or really. And after you've gone through some terrible trial, you say, make good out of this, God. Let me see it, because I don't believe it. This is hard. This is really hard for us. And so uh, what I want us to do now is I want us to, to work through how it is That good can really and truly be used by God out of things that that are not good. My guess is you don't have any trouble believing that that good things work out for good, right? But the disbelieving part is what about bad things? So I want to talk about some of those bad things. And I want to give you four, I think, that, that sort of cover most of the bad experiences we face in life. When you want to ask about sin... Can sin be used by God for good? What about affliction? What about loss and grief? What about death? So we want to show how bad things, even evil things, which these are, can, made, can be made good by God. Sin, affliction, loss, death. What about sin? Can sin ever be used by God for good? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Sin is not good, but God overrules the evil of sin for the good of his people. For the godly, our sense of sin, when we sense the sin that that we are committing, 
It actually draws us closer to Christ. Our sin makes us more humble. Our sin shows us how needy we really are. Our sin makes us more grateful for the fact that Christ would die on the cross to save us from it. Now, of course, that does not mean we run headfirst into sin. We do not run into sin, but when we have found that we've fallen into sin, you know what this means? It means that we haven't ruined our lives. If you're a Christian, it's impossible for your sin to ruin your life because God takes your sin and actually turns it into good. Um, Paul's the perfect example. The sin of blaspheming the Holy One and persecuting the Church of Christ. Uh, God used that in amazing ways. You know the verse, right? First Timothy, when Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. I'm the worst of the worst. We know that verse. But then verse 16 is equally as important, where Paul tells us why this happened. He says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul's saying, I I see why I was converted. It was so that other sinners could look at me and say, if God could save this guy, then maybe he can save me too. God can use our sin. What about our affliction? What about suffering? What about trials? Can he use those for good? Well, for the Christian always. Afflictions can form us to Christ, who himself is the man of sorrows. Afflictions wean us off of our, off this world and our love for the world. They make us long for heaven. Afflictions make us pray more fervently. These are all good things that come out of affliction. That's why David says, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. He said, it's because of a, I was afflicted that I, I drew closer to God. But moreover, the afflictions that God sends are often the instruments of our deliverance from even greater trouble. Let me say that one more time. Listen to this. The afflictions that God sends are often the instruments of our deliverance from even greater trouble. Joseph is the key example, right? Or his desertion by his brothers. Uh, how did that end up? That actually led not only to his advancement to the um, top of Egyptian society, but also led to the rescue of his family who was on the brink of starvation. And you remember what J- Joseph says, Genesis fifty twenty, which is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans eight twenty eight. What you intended for evil, God meant it for good. Esther's time in captivity meant the preservation of an entire nation. Paul and Silas were in prison too, and yet their imprisonment led to the jailer's conversion and their release. So can you say that your afflictions are good? Can you say with David, it is good that I was afflicted? It was Betsy Ten Boom who, in attempt to give thanks in all circumstances, prayed in the Ravensbrook concentration camp, Lord, thank you for the fleas. And her sister, Corey, thought, that, well, that's just a bridge too far. You know, I'm, I'm trying to pray for, for all things, too, and be thankful in all things, but the fleas, really, that, that's, that's too much. And yet, a few days later, uh, she realized how right her sister was because the girls noticed uh, that they were essentially without any sort of supervision in their dormitory, which allowed them the freedom of holding Bible studies with the other 
girls there. And why was it that the Nazis didn't want to come in and give them a hard time? Well, the guards didn't want to get fleas. And Corey later wrote, I remembered Betsy's bowed head. I remembered her thanks to God for creatures I could see no use for. Indeed, God works all things for good, even our affliction, even fleas. What about grief and loss? Can God use grief and sadness? Yes, God uses even these for our good. Think of rock-bottom conversion. Sometimes God needs to take everything away from a person so they see they still have him. My dad's conversion is a, is a perfect example of this. My dad, when he was only um, 11 years old, uh, came home to, to find out um, that his father had died in a car accident. In fact, he said that... Um, it, it took him a, a day to get that information. None of the adults were talking to him. And finally he had to say, is dad coming home? Is dad dead? No, dad's, dad's dead. Uh, that left him at home alone with a pretty loveless mother. She eventually married Don. Don wasn't a whole lot better. Uh, certainly did not um, replace that father figure that my dad was aching for at such a, form, a formative age. But there was at least one thing that Don did, um, and that was when my dad was a a few years older, he got him a job at the local um, convenience store. And it was at that convenience store that my dad met Dane Emmerich. And Dane Emmerich presented the gospel to my dad and led him to Christ. And so what's it all mean? Well, it means something that my dad could only see now, looking backwards, he could not understand at the time, But what he learned was that in losing his earthly father, he found his heavenly father, whom he could never lose. And that the worst thing that happened to him in his life up to that point turned out to be the best thing that happened. God uses grief, sadness, hard things to save people from their sin. And I want you to recognize that when it comes to hell... There is no experience in life that would be so bad that it would not in the end be worth going through if it kept you out of damnation. In Pittsburgh, um, there's a a PCA church back in 2012. They were holding a a benefit concert for their dear pastor who was was, um, slowly dying of pancreatic cancer. They wanted to raise some money for him. And they brought in uh, some musicians to lead a concert. And his response to the concert was this. Quote, if just one person were to give their life to Christ at this fundraiser, then this sickness will have been worth it. God uses grief. Now, finally, what about death? Death is not a good thing. In fact, it is the least good thing there is. Um, Because death is the undeniable reality of sin's infiltration into God's good world. And yet... It's all turned upside down for the Christian. Death, which is the worst thing to happen to humanity, is actually the best thing that can ever happen to the Christian. Death can only make us better. The the great poet George Herbert said that death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him a gardener. Because now death just plants us in the presence of God. And the reason that death can do this is because of the death of Christ. And think of that. That is the most evil thing in the world that God turned into the best thing in the world. And so really, Romans 8.28 is an argument from the greater to the lesser. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, look, if the death of the Son of God could mean our salvation, if the worst thing in the world could actually be the best thing, 
then yes, even those difficulties that you face in life can work out for good as well. God works all things for good, even death. Well, there's still one more part of this verse that we need to address. I've made reference to it throughout, but we need to deal with it head on, and that is who is this verse for? Who's this promise for? It's not for everybody, is it? There's boundaries to this promise. Because all things do not work out for good for everyone. No, it says only for them or for those who, for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. And these are one in the same. Those who are called uh, according to God's will and purpose are the ones that love God. In other words, if you want to know, are you called by God? The question is, do you love him? If you love him, you're called by him. But if you do not love God, this promise is not for you. Not yet, at least. But it could be yours. And it must be yours. What a terribly sad condition the unbeliever is in. For the godly, think about this, friends. For the godly, the worst things that happen to us work out for our salvation. And yet for the ungodly, the best things in their life are working towards their damnation. What a tragic situation. What a tragic situation you might be in today. And so I want to say to you very soberly and very seriously, don't leave this text until it is your text. Don't leave this verse until it's your verse. This verse is not a meaningless, there, there, it'll all be for the best that just anybody can take with them. It's a declaration. It's a promise. It's a guarantee that all things will be for the best if you love God. This is for those who belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. Because to belong to Jesus, again, the Heidelberg tells us, means that he watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Don't you want that to be true for you? Well, then the question is, what are you waiting for? Maybe you're thinking of the things you'll have to give up to follow God. Maybe you're thinking about the sins you'll have to say goodbye to. Maybe you're thinking about the people who will abandon you or make fun of you if, if you become a Christian. But, but don't you see it? There's uh, embedded it within this verse, um, the, the, the promise has an answer to all of that. When we come to Christ, whatever losses you suffer for his sake will be worked out for your good. In other words, you literally have nothing to lose. And you have everything to gain. There's nothing. Sin, affliction, grief, even death. Things that would otherwise overwhelm us or destroy us now become servants of God's grace to us. Isn't that an astounding thought? That sin and affliction and grief and death, things that would overcome us, now are servants of God's grace to us. And Thomas Watson was spot on when he concluded this from Romans 8.28. He says, see what an encouragement here it is to become godly. All things shall work for good. Oh, that this may induce the world to fall in love with religion. Can there be a greater magnet to piety? Can anything more prevail with us to be good than this, that all things shall work for our good? What Watson is saying is, what reason do you have not to be a Christian when this is the promise given to you? And so... I say to you, brothers and sisters, my dear friends, do not leave this promise until it is your promise. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures, and we thank you for a wonderful verses like this one that are easy to remember for us in that they, they mean so much to us, and we want to understand them properly. We ask that your spirit would, would implant the truth of, of this verse into our hearts. And I do pray, Lord, that if there are any here today who cannot say that all things will work for their good because they do not love you, that you would instill in them a love for you, a love for you because of what you have offered in the gospel, that Jesus Christ would undergo the most evil thing imaginable, the worst thing of all, to turn all of our evils and all of our hardships into our good. In love and in thanksgiving, would we follow after him, bow before him, would our faith grow all the more to face the various trials of this life, knowing that they will work for our good. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.